You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this year's first episode of Africa Rights Talk, which launches season four of the Center for Human Rights podcast series. With me today is Ms. Ashina Mtsumi and Rosella DeFalco. We're going to have an interesting conversation looking at um, the right to health and analyzing the reversing the commercialization of uh, public health services. Before I give much away, I'd like to have these ladies introduce themselves and explain the nature of the work that they do. So we'll start with uh, Rosella. Can you please introduce yourself and explain the nature of work that you do? Uh, of course, thanks. Um, my name is Rossella De Falco. Uh, I am from Italy. I'm connecting from Italy right now. Um, and I work as, uh, I am the program officer on the right to health at the Global Initiative for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, an international NGO uh, working for the realization of economic, social and cultural rights. Um, and before that, um, I completed a um, doctoral program um, at the Human Rights Center of the University of Padova. Uh, so I, I have a PhD on the right to health. Um, specifically, my thesis was related to how uh, economic reforms impact the right to health in Europe. Um, and right now, my work is instead focused on um, African countries, and we will talk more about it later. Um, thank you. Thank you, Rosella. Now we move on to Ms. Ashina Mtsumi. Thank you, Tatenda. We're happy to join you today. My name is Ashina Mtsumi. I work with the Global Initiative for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. As the Africa representative, I'm based in Nairobi, Kenya. I've been with GIESCR for about six years now, and the focus of the work has generally been around reflecting on how to organize systems for the delivery of public services, including healthcare, education, uh, water and sanitation like this, to ensure that everybody is able to enjoy their economic, social and cultural rights, especially the most marginalized populations. Okay. Thank you very much, ladies, for the lovely introduction. I understand that as part of the work that you do, you have been working on reversing commercialization of public services and advocating for quality public services for all. And you've worked on a number of uh, reports um, which talk about the commercialization on the right to health during the COVID-19 pandemic, focusing on Nigeria and Kenya. So what I'd like to know is what exactly, what was the driving factor leading to the work your organization does on reversing commercialization of public services and advocating for the quality of these services um, in terms of like the right to health for all in light of the COVID-19 pandemic? Sheena, would you like to take that question? Sure. Thanks, Tatenda. Uh, interestingly, our work on this topic began with the right to education. So we started looking at education systems and how there was a trend of increasing private sector presence and activity in the education space with a wide diversity of the private actors. So it was not-for-profit, there were faith-based organizations, and there were also commercial organizations, so large multinational companies that were coming into the education space to deliver education or to provide services 
in the in the middle of the education system. And uh, the research started to reveal that there were some challenges being posed in particular to human rights and to the right to education with the way that the private sector was being included into it and the rapid growth in many instances the rapid growth wasn't accompanied by effective regulation from states to ensure that even as these actors come into the space as they enter partnerships with the government the essence and the elements of the rights to education are effectively protected and everyone is still able to access good quality public education should they choose or when they are in private schools they are effectively regulated to ensure that the quality remains good uh, inclusion is still upheld but what came out from the evidence at the time was that with the increase in private sector involvement in particular commercial involvement in education we're seeing more segregation where there would be two tracks basically of high quality expensive education that's accessible to those who can afford it and then for those who can't afford it they're relegated to lower quality struggling public education or in the african context there was also the emergence of of low cost private schools that also had a lot of questions come up around the quality of the education being delivered in these schools access inclusion and and um issues like this connected to the human rights framework so this work involved building up the evidence on what the challenges were and then connecting that to the state's human rights obligations in the context of this activity of the private sector activity so what should states be doing to respond to this sort of phenomenon to ensure that the right to education is protected and this work sort of led up to what we now have as the guiding principles on human rights obligations of states to provide public education and to regulate private involvement in education and what happened is that concurrently similar trends were emerging in other public services so healthcare water sanitation provision and we started to take note that there were some significant similarities in terms of the impact of the increasing commercial actor activity and we thought it might be helpful to make some connections so learn from the trend developing emerging and the evidence emerging of the similar situation in the health space while also being able to share some of the learnings from the work that we had already done in the education space and this led to um us building up work around the right to health and commercial actors and their impact on the right to health and this started with sort of developing a tentative framework on uh, what could be used as a human rights impact assessment where private actors are involved in health services and this is also accompanied by looking at what human rights treaty bodies had been saying to company to 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 states and to governments when they were reviewing state reports and the question came up about the increasing private sector involvement and this was all in an effort to to clarify what the human rights framework requires of states as they have the obligations when there is an increase in private sector involvement in health services 
Thank you. I like what you just explained or the issues that you just touched on when you were explaining the issues of obligations when it comes to socioeconomic rights. Um, We'll have Rosella explain that in more detail. But before we do that, I'd like to find out, Rosella, if you have anything to add in terms of the driving factor that led your organization into looking at reversing the commercialization of public health services in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, sure. So I've been working for GI for one year and a half now, and I was exactly hired to continue this emerging work that GI um, was doing on healthcare, building on the huge progress on education, the education movement against the commercialization of education services is now huge. There have been the Abidjan principles on private actors in education. Um, There have been huge uh, victories. Some companies have been exposed, such as the Bridge Academy, um, because of their impact on the right to education. Um, The right to health and the related movement on healthcare commercialization wasn't still that developed. A lot uh, had to be done. And over this one year and a half, we've we've been doing a lot. We've been building an international movement against the commercialization of healthcare services. We've been engaging with the World Health Organization and with the Global Fund to advocate for public healthcare services and reverse the current emphasis on private actors in healthcare, especially for-profit uh, private actors in healthcare, in the current international development paradigm. And why the focus on COVID-19? Uh, this is an excellent question, Tatenda. So we saw momentum. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, for the first time, is a disease that is global. It affects both developed and non-developed countries. Uh, so there is political momentum uh, to show that the right to health is relevant everywhere for everyone. And if we fail, if states fail in uh, providing the right to health to individuals, uh, everyone will suffer. Everyone will bear the burden. So this is why we we focused on COVID-19 and the the aim was to collect data and build an empirical portfolio of case studies that show uh, that worldwide the provision of public health care services uh, publicly governed publicly managed and publicly provided and financed are essential to protect population from the effects of pandemics or public health emergencies such as the COVID-19 pandemic. And for now, we we focused on Italy, a developed country, then Nigeria, and then Kenya, uh, showing that there are a lot of cross-cutting elements. And also, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is an interesting case because uh, it allows us to show that the right to health goes beyond the the narrow approach to the treatment of medical conditions, but goes uh, far beyond, um, and it is about prevention, rehabilitation, 
coordination between a range of stakeholders, um, the consideration of the social determinants of health and the interrelation with a lot of other human rights, such as the right to benefit from the progress of science, uh, the right to life. So it is a very interesting case study to advocate for public health care services for all. And we needed to make the most of this political momentum. Thank you. Indeed. So. Can you, in more detail, explain what the right to health is and the state's positive duty to realize these socioeconomic rights, Rosella? Um, yes, sure. So the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health is protected by a wide range of international human rights treaties, regional human rights treaties. It is also enshrined in more than 100 constitutions around the world. And it was firstly quoted in the World Health Organization, WHO's constitution preamble in 1946, and then again in the important declaration of Alma-Ata on primary health care in 1947. Um, of course, the, the most important um, article that we have to remember when we talk about the right to health as a legally binding uh, provision uh, is Article 12 of the International uh, Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights of 1960. And the Article 12 recognizes that everyone has to has a right to enjoy the right to physical and mental health, and it already contains some uh, positive steps that the uh, state have to take to, to fulfill this right, including the reduction of the stillbirth rate, infant mortality, and for the healthy development of the child, the improvement of all aspects of environmental and industrial hygiene, Importantly for our uh, current context, the prevention, treatment and control of epidemic, endemic, occupational and other diseases, so including uh, public health emergencies such as the current pandemic, and the creation of conditions that assure to all medical services in the event of sickness. This article, as you can see, is, is already very detailed and it has to be realized as per Article 3 of the same covenant using the maximum available resources of the state progressively over time. But it has also some obligations that have an immediate component, such as non-discrimination. And you asked specifically about uh, the positive aspects. So, of course, the right to health has both negative and positive implications. If we reason in a respect, protect and fulfill framework that is very, very used in um, international human rights law, there are some elements of the protect dimension that are positive. specifically. If there is discrimination and especially repeated discrimination against some specific marginalized groups that can be women, children or disabled people in the healthcare services, the state has an obligation to proactively remove that discrimination. Uh, and 
This can be because of a barrier, a geographical barrier, a financial barrier, an information barrier that is preventing a specific group to access healthcare. Importantly, this group can also be um, people that are uh, disadvantaged because of the uh, relative wealth or income. So also socioeconomic status can be a ground of discrimination. Then, of course, um, if we look at the fulfilled dimension of the right to health, the state uh, is obliged to um, adopt uh, at the very least, a national health plan and to recognize the right to health uh, both politically and legally, preferably uh, by adopting uh, relevant legislation. And I just wanted to complement very quick uh, saying that uh, Article 12 has been interpreted by the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights in General Comment 14. And in, uh, in the interpretation of the committee, the right to health both includes the right of everyone to healthcare services that are accessible, available, acceptable, and of good quality. And of course, if you have questions on this framework, the AAQ framework, we can talk about it. But the right to health, according to the committee, also includes the underlying determinants of health, such as food, water, housing, and importantly, participation in health policy making. And, and then, of course, there are a lot of implications um, looking at mental health and also a lot of implications looking at the rights to which the right to health is interrelated, such as the right to life and the right to benefit from the progress of science. And we, we can really talk for hours about this right. Of course, for the African context, it's very, very relevant that it is enshrined in the um, African Charter on Human and People's Rights. But yeah, for now, let's stop here <laughs> because the conversation can go on for hours. Of course. Thank you, Rosella. So your organization launched a report titled The Failure of Commercialized Healthcare in Nigeria During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Discrimination and Inequality in the Enjoyment of of the right to health. Can you please share the findings of this report? Yes. So we we studied uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in Nigeria. The first case was confirmed on uh, in February 2020 in Nigeria, which is one of the most uh, populous countries in Africa, but also one of the most advanced economies in Africa. So it's a very interesting case study. Um, and we, uh, looking at the findings, um, there are four findings. We found that Nigeria lacks universal public healthcare services well equipped to respond to public health emergencies. The country, Nigeria, is critically short of um, uh, hospital beds, staff, medical equipment necessary to deliver COVID-19 treatment, testing and vaccination to its population of more than uh, 206 million in 2020. Um, and unfortunately, this had to be expected because healthcare services are severely underfunded in Nigeria, health spending as a share of general government expenditure 
um, is as little as 4.4% in 2018, uh, so well below um, the commitment of 15% of the budget uh, that is contained in the Abuja Declaration, to which Nigeria committed to. And then we, we, we found that um, the commercialization of healthcare services um, exacerbate this lack of, uh, exacerbate these problems. Uh, in fact, um, as Ashina was uh, telling before for education, also in the case of health, we have this uh, system where um, people that can afford better quality medical services and care pay for it, can access it. Whereas the others are left with um, public healthcare services that are not enough or um, private health providers that in many cases offer substandard um, medical care. Not always, but uh, often. Uh, the second finding was, uh, therefore, the second finding was that several barriers impede access to healthcare services amidst the pandemic in Nigeria. Um, and such a, an access is shaped by socioeconomic inequalities, uh, marginalized groups, and specifically those living in urban informal settlements in Lagos and Poirakur, where we uh, conducted interviews face a, a wide range of barriers, um, such as uh, financial barriers, geographical barriers, and information barriers. Um, many people cannot access healthcare insurance, so they have to pay out of their pocket for medical services. And uh, this, of course, is exacerbating during the COVID-19 pandemic. And an interesting finding is also to look at the collateral damages of the COVID-19 pandemic on access to other medical services. For instance, uh, if a disadvantaged individual cannot access a COVID-19 test because of a financial barrier, then this individual uh, cannot access many aspects of his life because as we know now having a COVID-19 test, a certificate uh, that you are COVID-19 negative um, is needed to do a lot of things in, in life, including accessing some other medical services. Uh, so this is really um, a, a huge problem that goes beyond COVID-19 services specifically. Uh, the third finding is that there is insufficient regulation and monitoring of private health providers, uh, providers by authorities. There have been numerous cases of private clinics and hospitals not complying with scientifically appropriate medical standards and practices during the pandemic. Um, for instance, um, we, we found that some private healthcare providers weren't adequately equipped to provide screening services for COVID-19 cases. 
Um, or we found instances where expired reagents were used for testing or fake tests were being um, issued uh, by some uh, private health providers. And then we also found that several private health providers, especially uh, commercial providers, um, failed to comply with appropriate medical protocols and standards, including using employing unqualified staff, especially in urban informal settlements, or offering unnecessary treatment because of a profit motive, um, or using, as I, say, as I said before, expired reagents for COVID-19 testing. So these are the four main findings. And of course, our report is available on our website. And I encourage everyone to read it and to share and disseminate it. So to those of our listeners who might be wondering how to find the Global Initiative for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, please visit or punch in www.gi-escr.org. All right. So thank you very much for that um, comprehensive response, Rosella. I'd like to hear from Ashina because a lot of the responses that you gave, Rosella, indicate that these findings in the report from Nigeria do not only reflect a situation unique to Nigeria. They seem to mirror a similar predicament in the rest of Africa and globally. And I would like to also say that it sounds as though the COVID-19 pandemic only revealed the glitches in the health delivery system. So Ashina, what do you have to say about this? Thank you, Tatenda, for that very insightful question. You're absolutely right. I think something that comes out very clearly in the Kenya report is that the context before the pandemic was dire and the pandemic just brought out into very sharp focus how unprepared the health systems were to respond to a pandemic of this scale. Uh, so I'm going to quickly highlight the findings from a similar research that was conducted in Kenya. It's a very comprehensive report, so I'm going to try and just summarize the key points. And I encourage the listeners to read the report or at least the policy briefs which summarize the reports, which are available on the website that Rosella and Tatenda you shared. So in Kenya, as similar to many other countries, the health policy expressly encourages or urges the strengthening of the role of the private sector in the country. So both as a financier and also as a provider of health services, and the government implements different incentives to bring in more private sector into the health space. This includes tax exemptions and the development of an enabling legal framework, including for private-public partnerships. And this was actually a rather successful policy initiative because the report notes that between 2013 and 2021, the share of for-profit private healthcare establishments grew from 33% to 43%. This is rapid considering the, the period of time that we're, that we're looking at. And this is contrasted against government spending on healthcare, which is still at 9% of the national budget as of 2020. Uh, and in GDP terms, this is about 2.17% 
of the national GDP. So this is still very, very low in terms of supporting an effective public healthcare system in Kenya and even enabling a robust regulatory framework with the enforcement mechanisms necessary to ensure that where the healthcare services are being provided by private sector, they're being effectively regulated and monitored and people's rights are respected regardless of where they're seeking medical services. So for the Kenya report, so for the Kenya report, 47 interviews were conducted and three focus groups in three of Nairobi's largest informal settlements. These are Dandora, Madare, and Mukurukwanjenga. And the findings were actually strikingly similar to what was found in Nigeria. So the first key finding is that there's insufficient public medical services. In Kenya, as at 2018, Kenya only had 16 doctors for 100,000 people and 167 nurses for 100,000 people. And this is contrasted against the WHO recommendation of a minimum of 21 seven doctors and 228 nurses for every 100,000 people. Again in 2018, there was an assessment done on health facilities in the country and what they found was that a very small fraction, only 12%, had all the items that are necessary, infection prevention within the health facilities, and none of them had all the essential medicines that are required for health facilities. So again, we're seeing that this, the situation in the country was, because of the underinvestment, the country was not well prepared to respond to a pandemic of this scale. The second key finding regards financial and information barriers in accessing healthcare, significantly because of how difficult it is for people to access health insurance in Kenya. The penetration rate for the public health insurance, this is the National Health Insurance Fund, is, is very low, unfortunately. And a lot of people who are living in poverty or who have an inconsistent income are unable to afford this cover. And this is the main way to access health insurance because Kenya's health insurance system unfortunately, is not tax-based or our healthcare services are not tax-based. So we depend on health insurance to be able to access healthcare services. And if you don't have health insurance, then you would have to just pay out of pocket. So the out-of-pocket payments um, for medical services are very high. And of course, this ends up excluding a lot of people who are unable to, add, to afford the healthcare services and or putting them at high risk of catastrophic healthcare expenditure. So people taking out huge loans or having to go into debt to be able to access um, medical services. Um, another similar finding to what was in Nigeria was that the regulation for the private sector is still, is still very low, particularly in informal settlements where there are a lot of sort of makeshift health facilities that are set up. Most of the time, and from the research, you'll find that the people who are operating in these, the people who are providing services in these sort of makeshift healthcare centers and health facilities are not qualified or are using fake or expired qualifications. The medicines that they are dispensing also may be expired. When it was in the context of COVID, they were unable to provide the testing. They didn't have the protective equipment and they weren't able to provide the effective um, COVID care that was required. 
So this is connected to quality concerns where the highest portion of health services in the informal settlements are private, but they are these makeshift private facilities. And then there's a very the the number of public facilities accessible and available in the informal settlements was not enough to serve the populations because there tend to be higher populations in the informal settlements. Other interesting research that was carried out uh, within GIESCR was on Italy. Italy came into sharp focus during the COVID-19 pandemic um, and Rossella actually led on research to compare Lombardy and Veneto, the COVID responses in Lombardy and Veneto, which are two regions in Italy. Lombardy is actually famous and renowned for its, its more privatized healthcare system, while Veneto is more well known for having a strong public healthcare system. Uh, in fact, in Lombardy, 48% of the services, the healthcare services are private, and this includes partnerships where the private health providers have been accredited to receive public funds, and then 52% are public. And this is actually the lowest share of public healthcare provision in Italy. All the other regions have a lower share of private provision and higher share of a lower share of private provision, yes, and a higher share of, of public provision. Um, and the other interesting thing about Lombardy it is that it is one of the richest areas in Europe, not just in Italy. So the expectation was that it would have been well-equipped or well-able to respond effectively to the COVID-19 pandemic. But as the situation unfolded, it became clear that Lombardy's system of uh, competitive care, which had previously actually received a lot of praise as being uh, an e efficient system, that it uh, their competitive care had led to a dramatic rise in healthcare quality. But as the COVID nineteen situation unfolded, it became clear that actually it was it was dismally unable to respond effectively to the COVID nineteen crisis. By April 2020, Lombardy had registered 759 deaths related to COVID-19, while Veneto had registered only 499 deaths. And this is a very sharp difference between the first system in Lombardy, which is more reliant on private provision of health services, and the system in Veneto, which had established a very strong public healthcare system and had retained strong public governance of the system, even where private actors were the ones who were providing the services. An important thing to note in the Italy situation is that the evidence showed that the difference in particular between Lombardy and Veneto, was not just because Lombardy had a higher population than Veneto or there was some bad luck or something else that, that hampered their COVID response, but it was clear that the governance approach taken with regard to tracing, testing, and treating of COVID-19 significantly contributed to the effectiveness of the response. One of the key main weaknesses in Lombardi's approach was that the healthcare system, because it had been sort of left to a market approach, was a lot more fragmented. And it was harder for the government to organize a coordinated response to ensure that the community was protected. And this made it more vulnerable to the rapid spread of COVID-19. One key example is that initially only 
public hospitals were at the front line of treating COVID-19 patients. But as you've seen earlier, the share of of, of public facilities was only 52% and 46% of the, the facilities were private. This meant that the, the systemic response was limited because of how heavily it was relying on the private sector and on private hospitals. Um, of course, they noticed that this was a, a crisis and they had to do something to change the situation very rapidly. And they renegotiated the agreements that they had. The government in Lombardy renegotiated the agreements that they had with the private facilities to require them to also treat COVID-19 patients. But of course, this had to be done very rapidly. And it led to a situation where the contract negotiations weren't really transparent. There were limited opportunities for participation. And this was out of necessity. But necessary safeguards that should have been in place in the process of these contract negotiations had to be set aside because the system had already been set up in a way that was not effective. This is a heavy reliance on private provision of healthcare. The other key difference between the response in Lombardy and the situation in Veneto is in terms of how many healthcare workers were infected with COVID-19. So as a proportion of the total COVID-19 cases in Lombardy, 14.3% of them were healthcare workers, whereas in Veneto, 4.4% of the total COVID-19 infection cases were healthcare workers. So this shows that in Veneto, where there was a stronger public system and public response, even the healthcare workers were able to be better protected against COVID-19 infection. But in Lombardy, the healthcare workers were more at risk. You're right, Ashina. That was a very comprehensive um, response in terms of, uh, you know, how this issue with the COVID-19 pandemic is not only reflective of Nigeria, as one would expect from the findings of your report, but um, it actually does paint a, or indicate a, a bigger picture or shows, a, you know, speaks to the findings from Nigeria are a microcosm of a macrocosm of ever else is happening in the rest of the world. And as you were explaining these findings, I started asking myself questions. Why would um, a lot of these governments be underprepared and, um, you know, be found wanting in terms of responding to pandemics such as these. And I, and I realized that in the South African context, it's not only an issue of underinvestment, but you find a lack of political will, and I'd like to believe, from the parts of, of the government to actually want to make a change, come up with a, a better solution to make sure that there's efficient service delivery. And I think it's important for our government representatives and stakeholders to realize that once you are in a position of power, to serve the people. And when I look at the South African context and even context of other African countries, you find that corruption actually does play a huge role in abusing these funds that are meant to provide efficient and quality public health services. Which leads me to the next question, and I'll address this one to Rosella. What can governments do to prioritize the provision of quality healthcare services for all citizens? It is not only a matter of increasing governmental funding to health. Uh, that is for sure the first step. Uh, government should increase uh, resources devoted to health for all. Uh, in the context of African countries, to the very least, 15% of the budget 
um, has to be devoted to health and for expanding the availability of quality, well-coordinated public healthcare services. But it is not only about increasing the money. It is also about how this money is spent. From the evidence uh, we are collecting worldwide, talking with healthcare practitioners, talking with uh, patients, talking with individuals living in poverty, it is more and more evident that investing on market solutions, it is not effective to realize the right to health. This money is to be spent on public healthcare services and all the myths about the public being less effective of the market, these are all myths. Of course, there are problems also in public healthcare services. There can be uh, corruption, but there are problems even bigger also in the private sector. So the solution is to fix the problems in the public healthcare services and make it work for everyone. Because from research, we know that um, marginalized individuals will use public healthcare services to access quality healthcare. If we leave marginalized individuals to the market, they will only access substandard, very basic quality care, and they will be left to medical debt. But it is not only about marginalized individuals, it is about all the population. The study that we did in Italy wasn't about marginalized individuals, it was about uh, also people with a good income, um, doctors, um, uh, a developed country, one of the richest areas uh, in Europe and potentially in the world, um, was damaged in terms of public health outcomes by relying on the market. Because when you outsource the right to health to for-profit providers, it is normal that the uh, final aim is not anymore public health, it is not anymore the right to health for all, but it is profit. Um, so it is normal uh, that you're not able to realize the right to health through for-profit actors because they are in the market for profit, not to realize the right to health of all. Uh, and this, of course, uh, creates the situation where a market approach to health uh, focuses on the treatments that are most lucrative and not on the treatments or on the medical areas that are good for the health of people, that are good for the right to health, but do not uh, make a lot of profit. And the classic example is prevention. Prevention is not a good business to be in because it works on preventing illness and so preventing spending money on health. Uh, but it is excellent for the people, for public health. So this is why we encourage governments to spend money on public healthcare services. The private sector can only play a marginal role, a very limited role, and it has to be highly regulated, strictly monitored. Otherwise, the situation will go out of control, and uh, and this is what the evidence say. 
uh, this is uh, in maybe in an ideal world, another situation can happen. But if we look at the evidence, um, this is the, the recommendation uh, that is natural to give. And I also wanted to quickly uh, talk about a technical thing that is um, actually very important. We've been talking about uh, healthcare insurance. So in the world, there are systems that are based on taxation, general taxation, such as Italy, the UK, Spain, Greece. All these systems are based on taxation to finance the healthcare system. Whereas other countries such as Germany, but also Kenya, Nigeria, they have something called a social healthcare insurance to finance the, the healthcare system. Um, now, both can be good, uh, depending on the context. Uh, but governments have to be very careful when they implement the scheme. So, for instance, there is a social health care insurance in both Nigeria and Kenya and many other African countries, but it is implemented in a way that people cannot access it uh, because uh, either because they lack information to access it, either because they lack a stable source of income to pay for it. Um, and so th there has to be a comprehensive program um, surrounding the social health care insurance, which, which is uh, what the WHO would call a pre-pooled financing scheme. So a, a scheme where the resources are not paid out of pocket when you need the medical treatment. And this is where the costs get crazy. Um, we have to insure ourselves uh, for the risk of uh, healthcare costs. Uh, but this has to be done really, really carefully, thinking about how people can access it. And 100% of the population has to access it, not uh, 15%. For instance, in Germany, there is a social healthcare insurance scheme. It can be um, it can has its flaws, but the uh, 90% of the population access it, not 15% of the population. Uh, so any system can be good, but governments have to be very, very careful when they uh, implement it. Um, yeah, and uh, I think I... Um, I'm fine. <laughs> Maybe cut this list last bit. <laughs> yes. So, Ashina, various countries, um, like Rosella has already alluded to in her response, have national health policy strategies and plans. They're called different things depending on which country you're from. So, to what extent are these national health policies effective? to ensuring the delivery of quality health care? That's a very important question and also a challenging question because in every country, the context will be different. The, the needs might vary slightly and the approaches taken also might vary. But I think regardless of the system, the one way to assess the effectiveness of the system should be, should be the human rights framework. The human rights framework specifically regarding the right to health, is very comprehensive and sets out what needs to be in place 
as Rosella explained earlier, to ensure that everyone is able to enjoy the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. It details state obligations. So what states should do, what states should prevent. And these are the, the structures or the framework that should be turned to that people can turn to to assess their health systems to determine whether or not it's an effective health system to determine whether or not it is enabling the full enjoyment or the realization of everybody's right to health well that's a very good response and uh, rosella do you have anything you'd like to add as far as that question is concerned yes i just wanted to add that beyond the international context uh, there is a whole discussion at the international level for the realization of the right to health. Sometimes uh, states um, are advised by uh, international development actors such as the World Bank, the IMF uh, or the WHO. Um, these international institutions uh, play an important role in advising governments um, on their healthcare system. And what we are discovering more and more is that these international institutions often suggest to governments to go private, suggest to governments to enter public-private partnerships, to contract private providers to outsource parts of their healthcare system to for-profit companies. And we are working as GI to revert this narrative. We are working to, we, we have sent open letters to the WHO uh, to say, please stop advising governments to, um, to make for profit actors enter the healthcare system, uh, please advise governments to uh, realize the right to health through public healthcare services. And we are doing the same uh, with the World Bank. Uh, next week, we, we have a panel at the World Bank where we, we will be sharing all these findings um, and try to get these international financial institutions and these international institutions uh, to um, make the right um, suggestions in their policy uh, making advice. You know, this is quite an interesting topic because uh, not only does it affect the issue of uh, healthcare service delivery, but when we now start asking questions or making recommendations such as ensuring that the governments are the ones to provide healthcare services and, you know, sidelining the private sector, one would then ask the questions of what would happen to the issue of competition because competition is healthy and it seems like the private sector does bring in a lot of competition and a lot of um, effectiveness and efficiency. I would like to believe that the assumption that we should put this responsibility and honest on the governments alone um, assumes that the governments themselves are actually very effective. But then what of the issues of corruption? What of the issues of politicizing these um, healthcare service delivery? In many countries, I know during elections, certain supporters of certain political parties would probably get preferential treatment. And um, it does, you know, push one to start thinking about how to make sure that um, there is 
quality, effective and efficient service delivery. And I suppose these are the things that uh, this conversation actually wants us to start thinking about and start exploring. Um, With that, I'd like us to wrap up this conversation and give our concluding remarks. So Ashina, what would you like to say as a way of uh, concluding? Thanks, Tatenda. I think you, you shared an important reflection that I'll weave into my concluding remarks. And I think the, the, the gist of my concluding remarks is with narratives. Uh, Rosella alluded to this earlier. And at the beginning when I was introducing the work, I think I also alluded something about this, where there have been very strong narratives that have supported the development of public service delivery in a particular direction, and that is in the direction of more private sector delivery, where there's this generalized belief that's been disseminated and has been encouraged and perpetuated that governments can't do it. Governments should only regulate, and even then their regulations should be very minimal so they don't interfere with the market because the market is the one that is inherently efficient. It is inherently able to control for inefficiencies and ensure that people are able to enjoy the services at a good price because the market regulates itself. The market as a as a as an accountability measure that people will vote with their feet. If they like something, they will keep going to that service provider and that is proof that it is a good service. The provider is providing a good service. And this is not always the case, particularly in contexts where, because of the years of underinvestment in the public sector, the public services have shrunk or have become very dilapidated, very uh, poor quality, so that people don't really have a choice but to turn to private provision in its different forms. Um, so I think it's important to investigate drivers for the situation that we find ourselves in now because it hasn't happened spontaneously. There's a lot of policy choices and and momentum that has moved the world and, and these countries in this direction. And a related and important point is with regard to accountability, but also democratic control. Because with public facilities, at least, that are being run by the state, the state is exercising a duty that it owes to rights holders. And rights holders are empowered and entitled to question, to access information, to challenge, to participate in all of the the processes that go into establishing and operating public facilities. But with private facilities, this, this is, there's a disconnect where we can't really challenge the owner of the business. The owner of the business is accountable to the shareholders or to themselves, where it's a private, a small private business that they're running. And there's a disconnect in terms of democratic control and accountability and uh, access to information and transparency. And these are all essential elements of ensuring that human rights are upheld. So the importance of state maintaining oversight and control is is seen here in the sense that the state is the one that can be accessed, that these obligations and the people have a right to, to participate in these public processes. Corruption is a challenge, 
But again, the people are empowered to vote out corrupt leaders. And it's not as easy as I'm saying it. I know <laughs> that the dynamics, even in elections, which we would think are the most effective way of holding leaders accountable, even in elections, there are flaws. But I think in terms of strength and resilience, particularly in the context of a pandemic like this, but also of the climate crisis, which we know is, is, is going to lead to a lot of, earth, of other emergencies, it's important for us to establish resilient systems. And the evidence is showing that public systems, even with all their flaws, are more resilient. Thank you. Thank you. And we move to Rosella to give her concluding remarks. Um, thanks, Tatenda. The conclusions uh, for me are that we, we should shift the narrative um, in the sense that when we think about public healthcare services, we shouldn't think about the government's uh, healthcare services. It is our healthcare services, the people's healthcare services for the people, governed by the people, because uh, the public uh, should be uh, about democratic ownership, collective ownership. So I understand the problem of corruption. That has to be fixed because it, it's, it's our states, our world. We have to regain control as the people um, on healthcare services, education services, and this has to be the narrative shift. And I, I want to conclude looking at the vaccine problem. Now we have uh, governments that gave substantial funding to private companies to develop vaccines. And then what is the outcome? That these uh, vaccines um, are, are being... Um, are being held by these companies uh, that are making a profit on these vaccines and they are not redistributing um, these vaccines to the people, to the public, to us. So this is the narrative shift that we have to do, that public means, uh, means us, means everyone. It doesn't mean a corrupted and distant government. Um, so we should think about um, regaining ownership in a collective way. Uh, it means challenging competition with solidarity um, and challenging the um, competition uh, mindset with cooperation towards the shared goals that improve everyone's uh, standard of living and everyone's health. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies, for the wonderful and comprehensive discussion where we shared very insightful points as far as uh, the issue of uh, reversing the commercialization of public services and advocating for the quality of public services for all. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.